Um, so it's good to be back with you all today, and thank you for your prayers and your support, and um, we're very grateful for what was accomplished. So uh, we've been building in this process of this class to this this point, which is a new phase. We're taking a new turn in our study, and we're going to be looking at, for the next few weeks, identity in Christ and your identity in Christ, because all the issues we've been talking about with culture and the church um, and we as people are, are they all resolve themselves if you can clearly see yourself through the eyes of God. Um, so there's a story um, I heard once about these two Australian sailors who had been at sea for a long time, and they came to port in London, and they found their way to a pub, and they started drinking heavily. And so by the time they were ready to leave, and they stepped outside, it was dark, and a very thick fog had settled over the city, and they were completely lost. So they started trying to wander down the street to find out, you know, where's our boat? And um, they they ran into this guy and they said, excuse me, Blake. Hey, you know where we are? And they had bumped into this high ranking officer in the Royal Navy. And he was in all his garb and everything. And he became very indignant. Sir, do you know whom you're speaking to? And the one sailor looked at the other one and said, hey, don't worry, Rav, we're not that bad. We don't know where we are. This bloke doesn't even know who he is. And and so and so that's where our culture is today we've been lost in this fog and this drunkenness and now it's not even a question of where we are it's a question of who we are and so our our culture is very lost um and it's very sad so um you know there was a time in the past in america where we had some shared common values and they were just kind of understood among ourselves. And you didn't have to be a person who was, you know, like us deeply involved in church and in Bible study and in the work of the Lord. It just was in the fabric of society. But today, all those things which we used to just see as common values that bound us together, they're all in question right now. And so we, we question what is the value of a life, the value of a baby? Um, what is the value of marriage? What is what even is marriage? Is marriage just uh, uh, one man and one woman? Is it is it something else? Is it something different? And in that, we also look at there's now a debate among what makes a person a man or a woman, and that's come to the forefront of our culture. And and but when you pull back all the layers, and those are just some of the questions. But when you pull back all the layers of those questions, where you end up is this one central question. Did God truly say? That's really the heart of the matter in all of these. And it's, you know, did God truly say that the life of a person has value regardless of their age or their ability or their, their health status? Did God truly say that a marriage is one man and one woman? If there's love in the midst of this relationship, isn't that really just good enough? Doesn't that make a marriage? You know, or did God truly say, I make them male and female in the beginning, and they are to complement each other and serve each other. And that, that makes this different relationship that we have from other people, this relationship of marriage of a man and a woman, each submitting to the other, not dominating, not manipulating, not being abusive. Now, these are questions that are in our culture today, and you'll see these, these questions show up in the storyline of any movie you watch today that's recently made, any TV show that's recently made, even in the way your news is reported to you, 
is is colored and shaded with these ideas and these views. And there are many foundational foundational aspects of our life and our reality. The forces of evil are calling into question today. Now, um, at the core of all this, and I think this is where our true, our final answer, and our final, we've, we've diagnosed the, the issue. I mean, we, we can clearly see what's wrong. The question is our response. I believe that the response that we as believers, as a church, must have to these questions in culture today is this. The people are truly questioning what makes them valuable. What gives them worth? What gives them significance? And so how do I find my significance? Now, the answer for many of these people is found in how they see themselves, which is why we have this thing of identity. I identify as a cat. I identify as, you know, a walrus. I identify as whatever I choose. But that's how you're seeing yourself because you're finding your value. You're finding your worth in how you see yourself. And um, sadly, many people are getting the wrong answer to this question. And the result of having that wrong answer is going to lead to years of pain and misery and brokenness and wounded relationships. And eventually they're going to be disappointed and they're not going to find fulfillment in what they're pursuing. Now, the correct point of view um, we as believers have from scripture is that your personal worth, your personal value, your personal significance is found and is critically found and complete in Christ. Jesus gives us our full potential and our of, of the fullness of our life. So think about John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking, and um, if you want to turn there, you can. It's John chapter 10, verse 6. And he's speaking, and he says this. Jesus spoke to them using this illustration, but they but they did not understand what he was telling them. So in verse 7, he said to them again, truly, I truly, I tell to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, that's Jesus, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I have come that may have life and have it to its fullness. Life lived to the max. The life lived to the fullest potential is only found as a believer, yielded and cooperating with Christ with the Holy Spirit. Now, today I want us to look at um, just a couple things. We're going to look at some of the ways that culture asks people to see themselves, us to see ourselves as well, and then the way that God sees us, kind of a, a juxtaposition of that. What does God say and what does culture say? All right. And then the final thing I want to do, and we won't have time to get into it today, we'll have to do it next week. But the final thing I want to do is I'll briefly, briefly speak to you about how can we, the redeemed, respond to these issues in culture. All right. So let's have a prayer. All right. Father, we are grateful that you call us together. You call us out. Um, you have picked us not just for our salvation, but you have picked us for purposes beyond ourselves to help and share your gospel and to help draw others into your light. Be with us now as we do this study. Let your spirit flow through us and our minds be alive and quicken with, with new truth and new insight that we'll be better equipped to conduct the work you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So remember this, our adversary is a deceiver. He was a liar from the beginning. 
He's the father of lies. And, uh, and, and if you turn over a couple pages in John chapter 8, you'll see what he says in verse 43. He's, Jesus says this, why do you not understand what I am saying? And here's his reason. It is because you are unable to accept my message. In verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, refusing to uphold the truth because there was no truth in him. And here's the critical thing. When he speaks, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46, which of you can prove me guilty of sin? Now, Jesus is asking here this one question. Where am I wrong? Where am I wrong on this one? What have I said that's not right? Am I not wrong? You can find no flaw in what I'm speaking to you because it is the truth. And if it is not a lie, it is truth. So he continues like this. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? And here we get to the heart of the matter today in our culture. And that is that there is not a desire to know the truth among these people. They're not seeking truth and understanding. From a, from a blank point of view, just saying, where's the evidence? Where does it lead? Their desire to be right and correct is their only desire they have. They have no search for that. They only want to affirm their selfish choices, regardless of how absolutely insane they may be, how detached they may be from logic and reason, or regardless of how many people get hurt, injured, even killed along the way. Um, we want our desires to be affirmed by all. And um, they, they, all they want is celebratory agreement. And it's not that I can just live my life and you go your way and I'll go mine. It is that you must join in me and celebrate my poor choices, celebrate my bad decisions, celebrate my flawed and broken life. And if you do not do that, it doesn't make me wrong. It makes you wrong. In verse 47, Jesus continues. And to me, this is just such an answer to where our culture is today. Verse 37, whoever belongs to God, hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear is because you do not belong to God. That's pretty awesome because in addition to what you just said about our culture, we worship reason. We worship empirical evidence. We worship libraries. We worship what the science says. And Jesus says, why do you not understand? Why do it, it, the, the faculty at Jerusalem certainly has large enough library, certainly has large enough brains. But Jesus says, the reason you don't understand or listen to me is because you don't belong. And then he says, simple parables that almost everybody in this room would understand. I mean, you hear a parable that Jesus teaches, you go, I'd like you to expound on that a little bit, but I think I already got the gist of it. They couldn't get those. And it says, why do you talk to him in parables? He says, because, and then he quotes Isaiah, seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. They are unable to hear it, but such is not for you, for you have been chosen and your eyes are open and your ears are open. If you get this and everybody sitting in here is trying to get it and going, there's parts of it we don't get. This is an incredible thing. 
that you have been chosen to have your eyes open and a really, 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 really smart double three-time PhD sitting next to you goes, no, I, I, don't, I don't get that. That's, that makes no sense to me. And this makes no A man is a man. I mean, some things, they're just so simple. It's, it's a quite amazing thing that what God has done here with blindness and eyes open and ears open and Emmanuel Kant makes the point. He says the highest level of knowledge is reason. Anything beyond reason doesn't count. That's the the foundation for our American educational system, for the whole enlightenment. And Jesus is taking it all apart in one verse when he says, "You do not." If that's not the highest knowledge, yeah, because what we're dealing with here is a spiritual blindness for these people. Um, so when you're dealing with these people, especially people that you love um, and you care about deeply. And so in my Bible study right now, I have two of the men in my uh, Saturday morning Bible study who have uh, one has a granddaughter and one has his own daughter. And they each are believing that their fulfillment uh, of life and their best life, their max life, the best life they can have is if they were be, to be made into men. And so they are blinded by um, what's going on right now. And they don't understand the depth of the damage that's going to be done to them um, in long term. What it, it basically will lead to death for most people. 63% of these people uh, in their lives in suicide within two years of, of the surgeries that they have. So when understanding that, that you love this person and you care for them, all your conversations with them about these issues, because they are, because they are spiritually blind, they are so sensitive. You have to bathe that conversation in prayer, and it has to be just cloaked in love, just covered in love when you bring these things up with them so that they will have an opportunity to let the Holy Spirit do the work, to let some of the words sink into them, because the end, they're not going to be persuaded by our words. Our words will be used by the Holy Spirit to find a little opening in that armor that they've clad themselves as, that, that armor of lies. And there'll be a point where the Holy Spirit will open up in their heart and they can be set free from that. So our task for them is to rely on the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, And part of that is that we must have an obedient heart. Whatever God is asking us to do for these people and say to them in their lives, we must do that and say that. Now, let's continue with this idea of identity. So some people are identifying themselves by what is on the outside, by what people see, okay? So they look at what's on the outside. So they'll look and say, I find my identity in my body. Um, and that, that might be within their gender, maybe in piercings or tattoos or physical strength or beauty or talent or skin color, athletic ability or physical abilities, or maybe it's an inability that you have. Maybe it's missing limbs or deafness or blindness, maybe it's something like that. And, and we will ourselves many times make our first impression judgments on people by what we see on the outside. And then later on, we get to know them and then we change and our opinion of them modifies. So it's only natural that we would do that. Now, that's what culture says. Culture says your identity is completely wrapped up in what people see in you right now. But what does scripture say? It's what's on the inside, exactly. Scripture says as believers, you are identified by what is on the inside of your body. And scripture tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's not what people see on the outside. It's what God knows is on the inside. 
And that's where our identity is found. Do you understand the difference between what culture is saying and what God is saying? Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So this is one of the reasons that this movement is succeeding right now in our culture is because um, they think they're going to find all their purpose and meaning and fulfillment based on what their body is like. And it, it's, it appeals to a lot of people. And there's a reason why we have, um, and there's nothing wrong with these things. There's a reason why you have Weight Watchers and gymnasiums and athletic clubs and sports and stuff like that, because people want to uh, improve their bodies. They want to maintain their bodies because they, we judge ourselves so much on what our bodies look like and, uh, and what we can do with them. Wouldn't you say, Matthew, though, also, I mean, that's just a, um, that's just a front on the battle. It is. This is just a front. One of them is to get you obsessed with yourself and your, your, your image. But the other one is to say, you need to be a better person. And so you need to love and do all the words we would say, but it, but then the loving thing that you would do is, and I'll just throw out a few, you, it would be loving my, the pastor that I spoke to. I had to counsel her to have the abortion. It would ruin her family. That was a loving thing for him to counsel her to do one of the most despicable and unloving things you could do. But he felt he was doing right because their notion of rightness is is wrong. And so it's not just fix yourself on the outside and identify with who you are on the outside. We'll also redefine what goodness is, and you need to be a good person, where scripture clearly tells us there are there is no good. No, not one. All of sin and fallen short. And it says, if you want to be good, then you have to do certain things. And Christianity has the answer for that. Your study. Find your identity in Christ, and then we can start working on this. But no, they're going to fix themselves by being good and then you look at what goodness is goodness is affirming that that you really are a boy or a girl goodness is affirming that yes you can have a relationship with a man woman goodness is affirming yeah your divorce is okay goodness is affirming you can kill your baby goodness and they're all couched and again we're sitting there going these things i understand the humanity of it but you can't call them good but they've actually found virtue in them and that's that's where we are. We've got this uh, this choices people are making. I'd like to share two personal experiences. I I was the head pastor for lots of spiritual retreats in Phoenix, Arizona, and you'd have a men's retreat first, and then a women's retreat. And we're looking at 30, 30 or thirty five women at a women's retreat, and it ends with you know them giving their their testimony of faith. And I'm looking at these women. I'm not blind, and some of them are pretty good looking. And I'm going, I'm watching them give their testimony. I'm going, their beauty in here is not in their outward, but in what they're saying. And just you, you look at it, how can somebody know this, see the beauty of this woman if you, if you don't know what she's saying and what she believes? And um, I remember seeing my wife for the first time and said, you know, I got to check this one out. And then, <laughs> then she came to our Bible study on uh, Wednesday nights for college and career, and she offered to do lead the Bible study. Like, oh, she's got some faith to go with this. And I really took notice 
uh, and the, the, the long after that. Um, so the beauty of a person inheres in their faith much more than in their outward. And you, it doesn't take long to see that. Uh, it comes out in all sorts of wonderful ways. Your faith really does come out in how you uh, conduct and what you say and so on and so forth. And especially, I think it comes out in our witness or in our testimony. Or listen to these women and express their faith. It was a thing of beauty. Just awesome. Mm, yeah, it can be very, faith is a beautiful thing. I agree. So we believe that it's the, the present Holy Spirit that separates apart us from others. Now, if you think about this, here's a thought for you. For those who do not have the presence of God within themselves, and they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, they're empty of God. And so when you see our culture going on these pathways and making these choices, for us, it's a struggle. How can you do that? And I sadly think it's, there's no other influence in their lives but evil in their hearts. And so they end up that way because our goodness is no good. So um, here's a point of personal application for you. So I'm just going to take the cattle prod out and zap you. Any part of your life, any part of my life that is not under co- the complete surrendered, yielded control of the Holy Spirit, and I think that is part of the sanctification. I think we all have different aspects of our lives that we think we can handle and do better than God. And God doesn't need to be in here doing anything with this. Any of those parts that we don't give over to him, the evil one is in control of that part of our life. And that's a, a devastating thought for a believer. Because what we're doing is we're saying to God, I can do this better. So that make me exalted above God to do this part of me better instead of saying, I can really foul this up in a hurry. Why don't I take this part of me and give it over to you and let you take over this part of me and let's see how much better you do it than I do. And I know that's a convicting thought. I hate to bring it to you. Isn't that why we have confession every Sunday? Because we because we take over those parts? Because we know and we ask the Holy Spirit to bring us, even to our mind, some of the things we've done. We know what we've done, but we also have the assurance given afterwards. We have the reminder of what what was right. And that, again, we are saying, wow, what these are everything I'm confessing to you is a reminder that without Christ, I was completely unable and those are reminders to us. To And then after we pour them out again, we are reminded again, these have been covered. You have been forgiven. And so it's not a, a, a going back to square one to accept Christ. It's just a reminder to say, oh, how great and wide is the mercy of God and how goodness. I mean, his graciousness mm-hmm. is so unbelievable. Thank you, Jesus. Now set my heart right that I might get about your business today again. Mr. Roy? I struggle with what I'm going to call a Jonah complex based on how the society is going, this transgender thing and, you know, gay marriages and, and, and 
they call good things evil and evil things good. And and so much of me wants to, like Jonah, run away and, and let God just destroy them, you know, because it's it's so against what his will is and everything. But getting back to the mercy of God, which passes my understanding completely, um, we have to have the mercy and trying to address and trying to cope with and trying to rectify how messed up this culture is and and things like that is a real burden and a real struggle for me because you know you just you just want the evil to stop you want the the craziness to go away you want people to understand and know that Jesus is the Lord and he came as an infant and he came meek and mild he ain't gonna be like that a second time you know and so when we say, come Lord quickly, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of saying, but I have to struggle and say, Lord, you do have mercy and Lord, help me get through this. Matthew, if you're going to address this later, just say it, but this is the crux of the problem. I think he wasn't that like that the first time. If you went back to John back in chapter nine, he's speaking and he talks about true vision and true blindness. And the same issue, but this is before he says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the way, and the, the thief cometh to seal, destroy. He's talking about the true vision, and he comes to a man and he says, do you believe that the Son of Man can do these things? And he says, I do, but who is he? And he says, I am he, and he says, I believe. And then he says, I have come to judge. I am bringing judgment on the world. Okay, that's Jesus, and we go, yes. Finally, the judgment, he says, but here we're caught because he's then going to say, but I've got sheep to go after. (laughs) They're lost sheep. And he goes into this whole thing. But the judgment is already there. And I believe we're caught sometimes in this. Do I bring judgment by declaring the truth? Because when you declare the truth, you are actually bringing judgment on them in an effort to bring them out of the darkness. And so I think the real question is not to run away from it, but to how do I embrace it and bring a very difficult message? Because especially if I was talking to, let's say Margaret Sanger, head of Planned Parenthood and all that, we all know, if you know her, she's just a wicked woman, racist and everything else. I'm going to be much, much, much harsher on her then I am going to be the girl who's confused and doesn't know what to do. And she's 16 years old and has a baby and she's pregnant. This one is a teacher, a blind guy, a wicked person training and teaching this one. As you and I and those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard. You have to be very careful when you start to say, well, I'm going to teach everybody else. Okay, but you know, up the standard now because you will be held accountable. The, the teachers of this wickedness will be held to an account. And sometimes we have to publicly come out, but very often that gets translated down to the individual who's hurting, who's broken, who needs our love and mercy, that you feel the same way about me as you do about her. I said, no, that was, I was speaking to the ones teaching you this wickedness 
and coming out strong against the teaching. But you, we need to help. We need to, to bring you in because you're the sheep that's being taught something. Does that make sense? I think that's the issue of the day for Christians. They're saying, how do I balance these two messages? One is very, very, very harsh. And Jesus was harsh. One is extremely compassionate. And Jesus was compassionate. And sometimes our message gets mixed up. And we're always labeled that we're just mean, ugly, hard-hearted people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In response to that, I would say the issue doesn't reside with you. And if you simply bear witness with the words that you're authorized to say, God will do the business either judging or bringing to life. Um, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, when you bear witness, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. And uh, so just reside or have, have confidence in his leading. And then let me do the work either judging or bringing to life. Because it is true. The word that you speak is not yours to decide what, it, what it's going to do. The word of God will do that. I mean, he decides that. And it is a two-edged sword. So yes, every time you bear witness, you might be bringing judgment, but you don't know. Uh, you don't know, and it's not yours to judge. Right. I, I didn't know if he was going to address it later, because that's a whole Bible study of its own to say, okay, we know the issue. Now, how do we, how do we walk this out? Because we know that it can be very harsh. It can be very compassionate. And you have to judge and listen to the Holy Spirit for the person you're talking to. Is this a bruised uh, reed, a broken reed? Uh, is this somebody Jesus said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hurt a, a person who is hurting. I want, I've come to heal them. But the one who thinks he's, he says, if you said you couldn't see, then you'd be blind and I would help you. But the very fact you say you can see makes you blind. And now I'm coming against you. Does that make sense? He, he, they said, you're not blind. I've come to help the blind. He said, but you say you don't, you're not blind. But the guy next to you says, I'm blind. I can't see anything. And he says, come, you, you, you I can talk to because you admit freely you're blind. This one doesn't think he's blind and keeps spouting out things that are blind. So there was judgment on the one who says, I, I'm, I'm not blind. I, I, I see perfectly here that we have to kill our babies or whatever, whatever the issue is. Yeah. I want to. Uh, That's a whole lesson, I think. Oh, it is. There are some really good verses in your notes um, that we're not going to have time to dig into today. Um. I really wanted us to look at the Romans chapter eight passage verses five through 16. I think it's very important. And then we'll get into the response next week. So in Romans chapter eight, verse five through 16, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy spirit think about things that please the spirit. Now, this is a critical point for the the maxed out life. If you really want to have a maxed out life where, uh, where do you find your mind drifting? You know, we sometimes have thoughts that just sort of pop into our minds, right? Just pop into our heads. But we still have control over what we allow our minds to dwell on, right? Even if it pops into your mind, 
You don't have to sit there and form and shape it like a little ball of clay. You know, you can set it aside and move on to some with purpose. You can do that. So we can control what we allow to dominate our thought life. And listen in verse six, what Paul says. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Pretty straightforward. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Verse seven, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. So we are disappointed when, with, with those whom we love and um, we see them making destructive choices. But understand what Paul's saying here. This is Romans chapter eight, verse seven. They are under the influence of the destructive one and Satan's sole task is to destroy, is the destruction of individuals. He wants to destroy and kill everything they love and value from potential to relationships to themselves, to who, how God truly made them and all God has for them. They are living out a life in hostility to God, complete hostility to God. And we, when we are willfully choose, when we as believers willfully choose not to obey God and we go our own way, we also act in open hostility to God. Look at verse eight. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. And here we see the difference between our cultural control and Christ control. Instead of making choices based on what is on the outside of the person, um, believers are to make controlled choices based on what is on the inside, what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do and say and where to go and how they act in verse nine. But, and he, he confirms it in this verse nine, but you are controlled or excuse me, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the spirit. If you have the spirit of God living in you and remember those who do not have the spirit of God living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, so he will give life to your mortal bodies in the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by the dictates of, of, if you live by its dictates, your sinful nature, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful like a slave. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call out to him, Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Born again, that you are changed from within. It's not what's on the outside that makes you different. The um, there are so many good passages that uh, deal with this and our identity not being found in what is on our visible bodies, but instead the Holy Spirit inside of us as His temple. Um, there's another deception we're not going to get into today, but I want to go ahead and give you a preview of the antidote. Uh, what I think is the antidote to this. Um, and it's found in the Old Testament. 
It's near the end of the Kings. It's in Second Chronicles. You look at Second Chronicles in chapters 29, 30, and 31. You have this crazy event in chapter 30 where um, Hezekiah has become king. And one of the first things he does, in fact, by verse 3, I think it is, of that chapter 30, he becomes king, is he sends a group of men qualified over to the temple to unlock the doors, clean out the debris, straighten up the place, and begin to crank the worship system back up. And you think about it and you say, how did this happen? How did Israel get to the point where their their whole system of worship, which is almost like the spine of the nation, everything sort of hinges around that. If they don't have that temple worship, they don't have that relationship with God going, they're not Israel. There's something else. And how did it happen? Well, in verse in chapter 29, we see the king before Hezekiah, Ahaz, shut it all down. He locked the doors. And then he said, we're going we're gonna to sacrifice to all these other foreign gods. And if you want to worship Jehovah, that's fine. We're going to set up everywhere else in the, in the country you can worship Jehovah. We're going to worship all these other gods too. So he closed the system of worship. And they spread it all out and brought in this whole idea that all the gods are equal. All the ways of belief are equal. Everybody should be allowed to do whatever they want and worship however you want. And that controls how you live your life. And that's what happened. And that's what we see happening in America today. We see this belief system that all these belief systems are equal. So if you want to worship Satan as a Wiccan, that's great. Let me set up a Wiccan temple for you at the Air Force Base. I mean, it, that's where we are. If you, you think you, the, the witch is the way to go, then we should do it. And, and that's what you do. And it doesn't matter. All belief systems are equal. And that's where our government is right now with on military bases where they set these things up. Now, what's, what do we see is here's, here's where I see our answer, our solution. The king called those who were designated organizing and leading worship at the temple, the Levites and the priests. He called them and said, okay, fellas, we got to get this thing started back up again. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get this temple straight. Oh, 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 is he more? Ahaz, he didn't even just shut it all down. He took all the instruments that they were using in the, in the temple and he destroyed them. He broke them. So they couldn't worship. It was done. So they had to rebuild all that. And then they had to crank it back up. And what did Hezekiah say? Hezekiah said, we're going to celebrate Passover. And we haven't done it in a long time, but we're going to celebrate Passover. Hundreds of years. years it had not happened. And what is Passover, class? Passover is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of God through Christ for our sins. Without even knowing it, Hezekiah is saying, we're going to celebrate Easter. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so you know what they did? They got it all ready. They got it prepared. And then the king sent out royal messengers with the invitation to come and be a part of this. Remember how it used to be. Let's crank this thing back up. Let's join back in with God. All right. He, and he didn't just say, oh, you people right here in my part of the kingdom. He sent invitations out to the entirety of Israel, to, to, to people that didn't even believe he was king, said, you're not my sovereign. He still invited them in. Now, there's a lesson in that for us. We are to be the royal messengers of the gospel, inviting people to come into the temple of God, into the place of worship, into the point of celebration, and we should be bringing them in. And we shouldn't be limiting it by, oh, well, I don't think they'd ever say yes, or I don't think they would show up. We need to be inviting everybody in to worship. 
we are preparing in a matter of weeks to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We should have this in the forefront of our minds as we are dealing with people, and we should be inviting them in to celebrate that with us. And we can say, you haven't been. When's the last time you went and celebrated Easter in a church? And just ask people and see what they say. So we're going to do something different this year. Why don't you come be a part of what we do at our church? I think you'll find it very enlightening and very different, and it'll be amazing. I think you'll enjoy it. And start that process of inviting people, all right? So you, you have to be inviting people. The people that were in charge of the, of the temple system also began to make preparations for future years for that to happen, all right? <clears throat> so we should be inviting people into church to celebrate. Now think about this. We are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus today, even though today is not Easter. We're going to celebrate it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate it when we go through confession and forgiveness. We're going to celebrate it when we worship. So we can invite people for every day into this. The, um, so that's one. The next thing you need to do is you need to be um, living a life that um, reflects one who is forgiven and redeemed and restored. And so I would challenge you for this. At some point this week, you will come across a situation where you've been wronged. You've been slighted. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. And you will have an opportunity at that moment to make a choice. You have the choice to just pounce on somebody with power because you're in the right and they're in the wrong and you can crush them. Or you can have the opportunity to reflect the forgiveness that God has given you. And you can reflect grace back to them. And you can show a living example of the mercy that God has granted you. And you then have a greater opportunity to deliver them the royal invitation of the gospel itself and to participate in worship with other believers. The answer to all we are confronting is bringing people back to the gospel. Because that is where the answer is found. And that's where fulfillment in life is found. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life to the full, maxed out, no greater, no better. But we have to be in agreement with him and we have to bring others here so they can see it and we have to live it for them. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you do love us and you do reach out to confuse people and confuse cultures and you've done it in the past and you do it even today. Help us to be the faithful stewards of your gospel, the good messengers who bring the royal news of the gospel of restoration and redemption and fulfillment in life to all we meet. Give us your words, Holy Spirit, to speak this week to those we meet. In the name of Jesus, amen.